Praise God. I entitled this message, God's Intervention. I don't know if you remember, but I had recall mentioning that I was going to do a word study on all of the times in the Bible where it says, but God, or but this or that. Because as <laughs> Pastor Dr. Mike Petzer would say, make sure your butt is in the right place. Amen? <laughs> Hallelujah. So I started out, I, I got a strong concordance. I started looking this a, a long list of every place in the Bible. And the Strong's Concordance is based on the King James authorized version. It's every place in the Bible where the word but is. So I decided, I prayed, what should I do? I said, well, I'll start in Matthew's Gospel. So that's where we're going to start today, in Matthew's Gospel, where God intervenes. Amen? How many know that God is deeply concerned with every single area of our lives? God is deeply in love with us, and He cares for us, and He wants to help us. Amen? So, let's begin. Chapter 1, verse 20. Joseph is considering putting his espoused wife Mary away Privately, doesn't want to make a big scene. She's pregnant. They're not officially married yet. He doesn't know how she got pregnant. Uh, and in verse 19, uh, it says, Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make a public example of her, was minded or thinking about putting her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Isn't that awesome? The Bible says, according to Joel's prophecy, that in the last days when God pours out his spirit, he says, your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. Doesn't say how old Joseph was here, but an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Here he had was thinking about what to do, pondering in his mind and in his heart, what's the right thing to do here? Anybody ever been there? You, you have a situation where you, you really don't know what to do yet, and you're thinking and you're weighing the possibilities and, and the options, and some, some experts say that, well, you should write them down. Make a list of the pros and the cons of your decision and see which comes out the best. So while he's doing this, an angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream. I don't know about you, but I, <laughs> every time I read in the Bible about angels appearing or uh, have heard stories of people saying they saw an angel, it pretty much freaks them out. There was a story I read about a young man. He uh, was befriended by an older gentleman. I forget where this was exactly. Anyway, they would have prayer meetings, and they'd go to the church, and they'd have a bunch of people, uh, and they, they, they felt like they were under attack from the enemy. And he says, one night while they were all praying, there's a bunch of them in the church. He said the back doors of the church sanctuary opened up. <laughs> And he says, a bunch of the men saw this. These two gigantic individuals with armor on come in into the sanctuary and they turn around and they stand at the door at guard. 
And then they kind of disappeared. And he says uh, that uh, it pretty much freaked them out. The only person I think that it didn't freak out was uh, Balaam. <laughs> He's riding on his donkey to go curse the people of Israel. And uh, <laughs> an angel of the Lord standing there in the <laughs> with his sword drawn. And the donkey stops. So he beats the donkey. And the donkey turns around and talks to him. and says, how come you're hitting me? And instead of saying, what in the world? My donkey talks. He says, well, get up, you lazy donkey. And the donkey tells him, don't you see the angel? Oh, okay. <laughs> to me, that's one of the funniest stories in the Bible. The donkey talks to him, and he doesn't mind. Oh, a talking donkey. How interesting. Maybe we can make some money out of this. <laughs> Praise God. But anyway, the angel of the Lord appears to him and intervenes in saying, here's what you need to do. And so that's what he did. He took her to be his wife. Next instance of the word, in the old King James, they have the word but here, not now. So uh, Joseph has been warned again uh, about Herod because uh, if you know the story, the, uh, the Magi come from... The, Persia from Iran, wherever it was in the east, and they come and they worship Jesus, and they're warned by God to go back home a different way because Herod the king wanted to find out where this uh, king of the Jews was so he could kill him. And anyway, long story short, he uh, sends his soldiers to where Jesus was born and kills all the young kids. But in order to preserve Jesus' life, the angel had told Joseph to go to Egypt. And by the way, there is a, a place in Egypt where they believe that Joseph and Mary and Jesus lived. So it really did happen. And then in verse 19 here, but when Herod was dead, here you are again, the God's intervention. Another angel of the Lord, maybe it was the same one, appears in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and tells him, go back because you're fulfilling prophecy. Because the Bible says that out of Egypt I've called my son. And so Jesus' life begins uh, unfolding by fulfilling prophecy. And then in verse 32, but, there's that word again, when Joseph, this is Joseph he's talking about, heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, Joseph was afraid to go there. And again, God warns him, and behold, in a dream, by God, he returned aside to the region of Galilee and settled in Nazareth in order to fulfill another prophecy from the Old Testament, says he shall be called a Nazarene. How many know God knows what he's doing? Amen? And then in chapter 3, verse 7, here's John the Baptist. He's out there uh, baptizing people. And in verse 7, there's that word again. But when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You snakes! You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? His... Here's a guy who hears from God directly. And here's the guys who are supposed to hear from God, and they come out to get baptized by John, and John calls him out, says, you guys, 
What are you doing here? And I like what he says here. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? The wrath of God is going to come on the earth. Amen? Thank God that the wrath of God against sinners was poured out on Jesus. In Isaiah chapter 53, it talks about the wrath of God being satisfied by Jesus' suffering on the cross. But the wrath of God is still going to come on the ungodly and the unrighteous. Amen? And John says, who warned you? Thank God somebody warned you and I that the wrath of God is coming. Somehow, some way, someone warned you and I and we received Jesus' forgiveness and intervention so that we're not going to be subject to the wrath of God. Amen? And then next, goes on in chapter 3. Jesus, oh, oh no, he's uh, still talking to the uh, scribes and Pharisees, and John says, I indeed baptized you with water unto repentance, but there's that word again. He who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. Then it goes on to say, his winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor. And gather his wheat into the barn. And there's that word again. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This is an illusion, so to speak, of judgment and hell. But he's going to intervene. But he's going to do something that only God can do. He's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. Wheat's a good thing. It nourishes you. You can make bread out of it. You can make pies, cakes, cookies, woohoo, all kinds of good stuff. And God's going to gather the good stuff, the wheat, into the barn. However, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. He's going to separate. There will be a separation eventually. Amen. And then, chapter 3, verse 4. 13 through 15, Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized. Here's the Son of God, God in the flesh. He's coming to get baptized by John. And John recognizes this, and John tried to prevent him and said, Whoa, 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 you need to baptize me. I don't need to get baptized you. But But there's that word again. Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so for now. Be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. I like Jesus' answer. He said, dude, I mean, excuse me, John. (laughs) It's okay. Let's do this. Let's set the example. Amen? And John says, okay, if you say so. And they go, and they baptize, and you know the rest of the story comes up out of the water, and the Spirit descends on them like a dove. And there you have the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you hear God's, they heard God's voice out loud. This is my beloved Son, and whom I'm well pleased. Hear him or listen to him. Praise God. Good idea. And then in chapter 4, In verse 4, Jesus is driven out into the wilderness. The devil comes and tempts him. Hey, them rocks look like a loaf of bread. Why don't you tell that rock to turn into a loaf of bread and then satisfy your hunger? 
And Jesus, here's that word again, but Jesus answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but, there's that word again, by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. How many know that this word of God that we have is spiritual nourishment? It will strengthen your spirit. It will help you in your convictions. If you read it and study it, ingest it, so to speak, you will know God personally. That's a good thing, amen? We need to know God personally. That's that Jesus said in John, I believe it's chapter... 10 verse uh, 17, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the Father, and the Son, whom the Father has sent. Jesus came so that we can have a personal relationship with God. I told us, I was, had to uh, take my car to the <coughs> garage the other day, leave it there, and I walked home, and, and I had found that the uh, city buses are free still until the end of the year. So oh, I'm going to take the bus. So I'm waiting at the bus stop, and I, when I got there, nobody was there, but I noticed that there was a couple of pieces of paper with a rock on it. It was a gospel tract. So I'm waiting for the bus, and here comes a young couple. They come and sit down, and, and they kind of ignore me, and the young man picks up the paper, and he starts reading it. I wait till he gets done with it, and I say, what do you think? And I got to tell him about Jesus a little bit, Hallelujah. Praise God. That was a good thing. Amen? So I told him, I said, you, you know, think of God as the best dad in the whole universe. That's how God is. He's the best dad in the whole universe. Some people have had bad dads. Some people have had good dads. But God, the Father, is the best dad in the whole universe. And then in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins to expound on the Scriptures, and he, he's talking, and he's making disciples. He's instructing disciples. And these instructions are for us also. And Jesus, he's telling the disciples and us, you're the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, which I don't know how it could do, how shall it be seasoned? It's good then for nothing. But, there's that word again, thrown out, and trampled underfoot by men. And then he says again, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do men light a lamp and put it under a basket. But, here's that word again, they put it on a lampstand. It gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. God wants us to intervene in people's lives also. He wants to use us. Amen? God wants to use you and I. Let your light so shine before men. Let your life and your actions and your words glorify God. And then... In verse 17, Jesus said, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but, there's that word again, to fulfill. Jesus came to fulfill the prophecies. I don't remember exactly. I heard it somewhere. There's a certain number, at least 39 scriptures that Jesus fulfilled. Just 
in the crucifixion. Pastor Wayne says there's about 300 total prophecies from the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled. There's people that think that the Bible was just written, you know, like last year. So there's, there's, no, we had the Old Testament in Greek since about the year 400 B.C. And, and now they have to call it B.C.E. and C.E. It's like, ah, you guys, always trying to disparage Jesus before the Christian era. No, 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 it's before Christ's appearance on the earth. That's B.C. And C.E., the Christian era, it's not Christian era, it's A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, not A.D. after death. It's A.D. Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. Because Jesus came, the secular history even documents Jesus was here on earth. I have a copy of a translation of uh, the works of Flavius Josephus. And he, he was a, a, a genuine individual. He really lived. And he wrote about Jesus in his history book, that Jesus of Nazareth really lived and really was crucified by Pontius Pilate. There's a secular historian who is testifying that this really happened, that Jesus lived, walked on the earth, died, but he didn't believe Jesus rose from the dead. What he writes in his, his history book is that his followers believe that he rose from the dead. Be that as it may, I believe he rose from the dead because if he didn't, then we would have no hope. Amen? God. Now, according to John Wycliffe's translation, he's right, he translates this word, uh, for, or he translates the word uh, destroy as undo. Uh, one translator uh, translates the word abolish. So Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. But, Think about this. We who believe in Jesus, Jesus was Jewish, amen? But we are not Jewish. We're Gentile believers, Gentile followers of Jesus. So I was reading the commentary uh, from uh, Matthew Henry, and uh, he uh, looks at, John, at uh, Paul's letters. No, actually it was a Jewish uh, commentary that I was reading. That Paul's letters, especially to the Galatians um, and other letters that he wrote, are written to Gentile, non-Jewish followers of Christ. So that's us. We're non-Jewish followers of Christ. We're not Jewish just because we believe in Jesus and Jesus was Jewish. That doesn't make us Jewish. Amen? So what Jesus says, I didn't come to destroy and abolish and do away with the law. He came to fulfill, which is the Greek word plero, excuse me, which means to satisfy or to end by fulfilling, similar to when other prophecies are fulfilled, according to Dake's commentary. For example, Jesus fulfilled the prophecy of the virgin birth. He fulfilled the prophecy of the slaughter of the innocents. He fulfilled the prophecy of out of Egypt I've called my son. He fulfilled the prophecy in the Old Testament that a great light has shone on the region of Zebulon and Naphtali and a great light has been seen in Galilee. This is what it means when he says 
He's fulfilling prophecy. That these prophecies, these future events that have been foretold were completed. So he wants to, he's assuring the Jewish listeners here, I didn't come to destroy your way of life, to destroy the law of the prophets. I came to fulfill them. Matthew Henry says that the gospel is not the repeal of the law, but the amendment of it. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 10, it says that it was the time of reformation. The thing that Jesus did was he did away with the old ritual sacrifices. You no longer had to come to the temple with a live animal, confess your sins on that animal, have the animal killed, have the blood sprinkled for you because they had to do it over and over and over and over again. And it didn't work. It never made anyone righteous. But the blood of Jesus makes us righteous. Hallelujah. In Romans chapter 10, verse 4, it says, Christ is the end of the law. And so this word end is the Greek word telos, which means it's the goal. Or as um, Strong's Concordance says, it's the point aimed at. All the law and the prophets, if you remember Jesus after his resurrection in Luke's gospel, he's, he comes alongside two guys that are heading uh, to, on the road to Emmaus, and they're sad and downtrodden. And Jesus says, hey guys, what's up? Why are you guys so sad? And they look at him and they don't recognize him and say, are you the only person around here who hasn't heard what's gone on? Uh, we thought Jesus was going to be the Messiah. This guy went around doing good, making, performing miracles, and, and they killed him. And we're sad. Not only that, but we heard the strangest thing that some of our friends said that they saw him alive already again. They said, we don't believe it. So we're sad. And so Jesus says, oh, Guys, listen. And he opens the scriptures to them, which in those days was not the New Testament. It was just the Old Testament. Didn't the Christ have to suffer and go through all this and fulfill all these prophecies? So, oh, yeah. Hey, um, uh, we're going to stop here and eat. Why don't you come in with us? No, no, I'm going on further, Jesus said. No, 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 come in, come in, come in, come in and eat. Okay, okay. So they go in, and he prays over the food, and it's, oh! Their eyes get open as Jesus, and he takes off. Somehow he leaves and disappears. And, and they get so excited, and this is the good thing about Christianity, is we have the most exciting thing in the whole universe, that Jesus rose from the dead, and that uh, as the older you and I get, the more funerals we're going to go to. However, that's not the end. They get so excited. We saw Jesus, and they run back to Jerusalem and say, Hey, guys, we saw Jesus too. He's alive. He's alive. I read somewhere that the early Christians would greet each other with this phrase, He's risen. And they would respond as, He is risen indeed. Just think of that. That's the most powerful thing. That, that He came back to life. That even if you die, your body expires you have eternal life. You're going to live again. You're going to be in eternity with Jesus. That's exciting news. That's why they call it the good news. Praise God. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Roman, or, um, Hebrews chapter 9. There's a bunch of scriptures in here. Hebrews chapter 9 and 10. 
Hallelujah. <clears throat> chapter 9, verse 11. Let's start with chapter 8, verse 6. But now, here's that phrase, but, but now, Jesus has obtained a more excellent ministry, contrasting the old animal sacrifices with his own personal sacrifice, inasmuch as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. We have assurance, full assurance of salvation, full assurance of forgiveness, full assurance that God is working in our lives to change us and to mold and shape us and continually work in our lives and use us for His glory. The first covenant, if it was faultless, then no need would have been sought for the second covenant. Because in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, the prophet prophesies that the days are coming and will make a new covenant, hallelujah, which has been made available to you and I. Verse 11 of chapter 9, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Because the blood, it goes on to say, the blood of goats and calves could not clean us up the way the blood of Jesus can. Amen. Cleanses our conscience. Hallelujah. Verse 10, or chapter 10, verse 3, but, in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. The Jewish community just celebrated Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Once a year, they have the Day of Atonement where in the Old Testament or under the law of Moses, the high priest would go into the most holy place once a year. But every year, in verse 3, in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. In verse 12, but this man, Jesus, after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of the God. Why did he sit down? Because the job's done. There on the cross, when he gave up the ghost, he said, it is finished, done, paid in full. Hallelujah. The worst person, the worst sinner in the world has redemption made available to them. Amen. The Jeffrey Dahmer killed and eight people and he got caught and convicted and he put in prison and he refused to be put into the uh, protected area and naturally somebody in the prison killed him. But he wasn't afraid because he had repented and he had turned his life back to Jesus. The worst sinner. Redemption is available to them. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Oh, that's not fair. These guys killed people and murdered them and caused all kinds of horror and, 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 and trauma to families. Uh, and uh, it is fair. What's not fair is that Jesus went to the cross for us where it took our place. We should have been there. When, I in, when, you, when people understand that they are worthy of the punishment and wrath of God, and then they understand that the wrath of God was placed on Jesus in their stead, what a glorious and wonderful thing that is. Amen. Praise God. And he sat down because he was done. <clears throat> Hallelujah. 
I think that was the last slide, but I'm not sure. Okay. Thank you, Pastor Wayne. <laughs> Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11 says, The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. And I looked up that word flesh. It doesn't mean your sinful nature like it does in the New Testament. It means simply the body, that the life is in the blood. If, if you or any mammal, warm-blooded mammal, even a cold-blooded creature, has no blood, they have no life. They're dead. So the life is in the blood. So somehow, some way, God decided this is the way to pay for sin, that the life of some innocent thing takes the place of the guilty. Praise God. Turn with me, if you will, back to Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Ah, there it is, Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But first we'll do Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Paul quotes Psalm 143, verse 2. No one living is righteous before you. Remember a couple of weeks ago I preached about God's standards. No one can live up to God's standards on their own. No one will be declared righteous on their own merits because of God, uh, before God. It's only on the merits of Jesus. I like what uh, this one preacher said. You know, I don't know what your theology is, but the man on the cross, the, uh, uh, on the, <laughs> the thief on the cross, uh, he got to the pearly gates and somebody said, oh, wait a minute, you can't come in here. So yeah, the, the guy in the middle cross said I could. Praise God. <laughs> hallelujah the man on the cross said I can come in praise God he paid my ticket for me <laughs> one time I went to the movies with some friends of mine and uh, I thought they were paying for my ticket and I just kind of followed and wandered in and we got inside and I asked them, I said hey thanks for paying for my ticket and they said we didn't pay for your ticket <laughs> I just wandered in and nobody said anything <laughs> <laughs> Praise God. I wasn't saved at the time, otherwise I would have turned around and paid the hey, I'm sorry, I forgot to pay. Praise God. <laughs> Hallelujah. Life is in the blood. The law and the prophets witness. They say this is what the deal is. And here's the deal. But God intervened demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, there are people that don't even know they're enemies of God, but Christ died for them. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Romans chapter 8. We'll wait on that one. We'll go back to Romans chapter 5, we've got a couple more scriptures between there. Romans chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. But God be thanked that though we were slaves of sin, yet we obeyed from the heart 
that form of doctrine to which we were entrusted. Having been set free from sin, we became slaves of righteousness. Verse 22 in chapter 6, But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, let's stop right there for just a second. How many know that when we give our lives to Jesus, we really are supposed to give up all rights to ourselves. We're supposed to be like Jesus and say, not my will, but your will be done. Amen? We're supposed to be totally obedient to God. We're not supposed to make our own plans and say, God bless my plans. We're supposed to say, God, what's your plan? Amen? That's what a slave does. Uh, we're here to obey God. What do you want me to do? That's Christianity. That's real, genuine Christianity. Is we are slaves of God. Hallelujah. No one likes to know, think of themselves as a slave. No, I'm a United States citizen. I'm an independent. <laughs> That's a video I've seen of this guy. He gets pulled over by the cops, and the cops all have their cameras on. And say, I'm a sovereign citizen. What do you mean you're a sovereign citizen? Well, I'm a law unto myself. Oh, really? You're under arrest for this infraction that you... <laughs> we're, we're not independent. We're dependent upon God. We're slaves of God. Slaves of righteousness. The good thing is that God is a benign dictator. He's not a nasty dictator. He's not like Stalin or Chairman Mao responsible for the death of millions and tens of millions of people. God came to give us life. We're slaves of righteousness. It's a good thing. Hallelujah. Verse 22, chapter 6. But now, having been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, you have your fruit unto holiness. That is, sanctification. It's being set apart, made holy by God. And the end result is everlasting life and everybody should have memorized chapter 6 verse 23 Romans chapter no actually it's 623 323 the wages of sin is death it is 623 yes now the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord wages versus the gift you have to work for wages you don't have to work for a gift. Hallelujah. The, the difference is that we trust in what Jesus has done for us so we don't have to perform any rituals in order to get right with God. We don't have to crawl on our knees anywhere. We don't have to bow down. We don't have to say so many prayers. We don't have to repeat uh, uh, so much uh, stuff. All we have to do is put our trust in Jesus. Amen? I'm so glad God makes it easy, makes it simple. Hallelujah. Chapter 7, verse 6. But now, in Romans, we have been delivered from the law, having died with Christ to what we were held captive by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit, not the oldness of the letter. So since we're not Jewish, we don't have to observe the Mosaic law. The, try reading, go through Leviticus and <laughs> read all those laws. It's, oh my goodness. <laughs> the purpose of the law is to show you what sin is. Amen? 
But now that Jesus has come, we don't have to focus on that. We focus on being obedient to the Holy Spirit. Because, Romans chapter 8, verse 11, but, there's that word again, if we could put in there since, instead of but, and since the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, how many have the Spirit of Jesus living in you? If you've received Christ as your Savior, you have the Spirit of God living in you, whether you know it or not. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. When we receive Jesus, we're more alive than we were before. Whether you know it or not, we have been made alive in Christ. We, there's a new, what you would call, who knows, maybe a good word would be a new energy. Something motivates us, something different than what we were motivated by before. Many people, like we were studying in Bible study on Wednesday night, everybody worships something. We should be worshiping God. Everybody worships something. And most people, whatever they pay their attention to and worship, they become addicted to that. And with the problem with addictions is that it never satisfied. You always got to get something more. There's always that, that emptiness, that hunger, that void that hasn't been fully satisfied. But we can find that satisfaction with Jesus. We will have trouble in the world. Yes, that's true. You'll have problems in the world. Yes, that's true. But we can go to a God who loves us and petition him with thanksgiving, even though we don't get the answer right away, that he will intervene, that he has stretched forth his hands all the day long toward us. What we should pray is, God, open my eyes. Let me see, God. Amen? Praise God. If or since that spirit dwells in us, it will energize us. Hallelujah. Then let's go to Ephesians and we'll finish up with Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, but God. I like that phrase. It's almost one of my favorite same phrases uh, next to uh, uh, Paul's phrase, which he uses in the letter to the Romans quite a bit. Much more. Hallelujah. But God, who is rich in mercy, rich beyond compare, filthy rich. Hallelujah. Rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loves us. Hallelujah. Rich in mercy. Have mercy on me, God. I like Jesus says, you know, the, he talks about the Pharisee that comes to church and he stands there and saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like other sinners like this guy here. And the other guy, he comes to him and he just says, God, have mercy on me. Anytime you have a memory pop up in your head and the accuser puts this memory in your head. Hey, remember when you did this? Remember that? Remember how bad you were? Remember how natty, na nasty and naughty you were? When that happens, <laughs> have I ever been naughty? Amen? Oh, no, not me. I'm totally, I've been innocent all my whole life. <laughs> you liar. <laughs> all those times when the enemy reminds you of your sin, 
You're just calling the mercy of God because God, have mercy. Jesus, have mercy. Like uh, Pastor uh, Vaughn Gerald used to say, whenever one of those memories would pop up, he'd just say, thank you, Jesus. Because it's taken care of on the cross. Amen. It's been taken care of. The mercy of God has been poured out. Hallelujah. Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? So that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Thank God that we serve a kind God. Thank God, oh my goodness, of all the times that we've messed up, we can always go to God. This is inexhaustible, like Dr. Mike Petra said. The, uh, um, how did he put it? There's not enough sin in the universe to nullify the unqualified or the uh, matchless success of Jesus' sacrifice. Not enough sin in the universe to nullify what Jesus has done because he's rich in mercy. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us. Hallelujah. And then we'll end Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. <laughs> but now, everybody say, now. now. Now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It's not any ritual that you do. It's not anything that you <laughs> can pay for. We've been brought near by the blood of Christ. There's times I've been praying. I said, God, I thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for going to the cross for me. Think about what is, it's called the passion because the passion of the Christ, the word passion, it comes from a, a Latin word which means sacrifice. Think about this. Jesus was abandoned by all his friends, betrayed by one of his friends, beaten mercilessly by the Romans, scourged. They put a crown of thorns. And one uh, commentator said it was more like a helmet. And it says that in uh, one of the Gospels that they beat him with rods. And he, the commentator said those were clubs. They beat it into his head. They, they covered his face up and slapped him and said, Prophesy, who, who hit you? The mocking that he went through. The abandonment. Then, after scourging him, he's brought out by Pilate to his own people. And they all start screaming, crucify, away with him, crucify him. He's not fit to live. What did he do that offended you so much? How did Jesus hurt you so much that you wanted him killed? My goodness, whenever people get so bent out of shape about Jesus and 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 get mad about Christianity. What did Jesus do to offend you so much? Nothing. Amen? Praise God. And then they took him to Calvary and put him on the cross, nailed through his hands and his feet. Praise God. Stuck him up there and dropped the 
the post in or whatever they did, dislocate his shoulders, and suffered up there in our place. It, I just, I wish I could comprehend that the sin of the whole world was paid for and put on Jesus and that day on Calvary. I wish I could comprehend that. Maybe when I get to heaven, I will. But when I pray and I'm thinking about these things, Jesus, what you went to, went through for us. Thank you for enduring the shame and the suffering for the joy set before him, which was the promise and the hope and the fulfillment of the prophecies of the resurrection from the dead and the restoration of all things. Jesus paid for the entire universe to be restored. Praise God. 